All right, we are uh, in a new series here at Meadowbrook, and at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. That is what is driving everything we do here. We are all about Jesus here, and we are wanting to help people take their next steps. And so whether you've walked with Jesus for a very long time, whether you are perhaps newer to the walk with Jesus, maybe you're not even walking with Jesus, and you're here, and you're just curious and checking it out, wherever you're at, we want to help you take whatever the next step is in your spiritual journey. And we focus on that primarily in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. Upward, we're taking our next steps in our walk with him, in our connection with him, in our understanding of him. We are wanting to grow in that. Inward, we are taking our next steps as God does his work in us and changes us and heals us and makes us more like his son. And then outwardly, as we are taking our next steps, engaging with other people, sharing the gospel with others, living out our faith in the church and in the world. And so we are wanting to grow and move forward in all of these areas. And so we started our series uh, that we're calling Jesus and the Sinners. And that's not to say that that's for Jesus and a particular group of sinners. That's just for Jesus and sinners, which is actually all of us. We all fit into that category. And so we are talking about how does Jesus engage with people found in sin in Scripture. And so we're just going to look at a bunch of different stories of where Jesus encounters people in their sin. And it's going to teach us things about Jesus. It's going to teach us things about our sin. And it's going to teach us about what do we do when we encounter sin in other people, both in our brothers and sisters in Christ and people who don't know the Lord. Lord, what does it mean for that? And so we landed on a few key points last week. Last week was our introductory message that we're going to keep coming back to. They're going to inform us as we go throughout the series. Uh, so first of all, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. 1 John 2, 6 says, if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we actually have to follow Christ. Imagine that. And so we are very, very interested in how does Jesus live? What does he teach? What example does he live out? And how can we imitate and follow after him? We learn that Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. That there are people who don't like that Jesus is friendly with sinners. They don't think that's an appropriate reaction. Jesus would be accused of being soft on sin. And that's something that he never was. But he was too friendly with people who were not walking with God. He was too friendly with people in their sins. And some religious people didn't like that. Jesus calls sin what it is to that end. And calls us away from it. That the heart of God is that sin ultimately isn't good for us. And so he calls us to a better way. He calls us back to himself. So Jesus never says sins. He never endorses sin. He never encourages sin. He calls sin what it is, and he calls people away from it. Jesus is both holy and merciful. He is both loving and compassionate on the one side. He is also um, merciful and gracious and, and a whole bunch of things that we're trying to hold together. And so it's easy to get caught up on the, the mercy side, and Jesus just loves everybody, and he's welcoming, and he brings people into the table, and just stop there. But we can't just stop there, because he is also holy, and he's also also calling sin what it is, and he's also calling us away from it. It's easy to focus on the holiness side and miss out on the mercy and the grace. And so we're trying to put all of these things together, which is more challenging, but it is the way of Jesus. We're trying to find that spot in the middle. And then lastly, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He's not wanting them necessarily to stay where they are, but he meets them where they're at. Wherever they're at, that's the ground in which he encounters them. That's the ground that he sits down at the table with them. He doesn't say, you got to clean up a whole bunch of stuff before I'm going to talk to you. He meets people exactly where they are at, and then he calls them to follow after him and follow in his ways. So as we jump into today's message, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. You know this by now. Science has caught up to some things that the Bible says, which I always love when that happens. But in a purely scientific, biological view of things, 
our brain is full of all sorts of chemicals, right? We, we know this now. It's been studied and understood. And there's a chemical in our brain called oxytocin. And oxytocin, it's been studied most extensively in mothers with their babies. And so when a mother looks into the face of her baby, there is a feeling of contentment. There is a feeling of bonding that happens. There's a, just a warm, fuzzy feeling, a pleasant feeling. And we can experience that in lots of other contexts as, as well. It's been most understood in mothers with babies. And as that happens, there's a, a connection that happens. There's a bond that happens. Um, they've studied things like it actually produces milk for the mom and, and just things that actually help her take care of the baby better. And so however God has wired us and put it all together, I think it's somewhat still of a mystery. But there's this thing that goes on in our brain where uh, when, when a mom looks at a baby, I think it also happens when a dad looks at a baby. It can happen when a husband and wife look at each other. Um, there is just this sense of peace, this sense of happiness, this sense of contentment that comes as that, that bond, that connection is happening, as that eye contact in particular gets made. And so I remember learning that about moms and babies many years ago in school. Here's a more interesting fun study I found about oxytocin, is that the exact same thing happens when you look into the eyes of your dog. <laughs> and that's not a joke, that's a scientifically proven fact. So I was a cat person growing up, and so we always had cats growing up. And cats will look at you or like look through you. It's kind of hard to tell. And then they'll carry on with their day. And then I met Sarah and Sarah was a dog person and Sarah had a dog. And so the price of loving Sarah was I had to become a dog person. That was just part of the journey that I had to go on. And so we have two dogs now. And I just, I, again, growing up with cats, I never had the experience of like, I'm like the dog's just staring at me like for an hour in the room. <laughs> And Sarah's like, she just she wants your love. That's all. Just look at her. Just look at her and, and she'll be happy. <laughs> so here's what this study has proven. Is that when you make eye contact with your dog, your brain floods with the same oxytocin that happens when a mom is looking at her baby. The exact same thing. And here's what else they've studied. Is that in a human, when you're making eye contact with the dog, your oxytocin rates go up 300%. So that warm, fuzzy feeling you get is a very real thing. The dog's oxytocin levels also go up, but it only goes up 150%. So we're getting double the hit of that lovely brain chemical than the dog is. You're actually getting more out of it than the dog is in that particular moment. But if you look at the dog, some of you are getting it just from looking at the picture of the dog right now. And you're going, oh, look at him, he's such a happy boy. And there's just, ah, just this nice feeling. But there's something about the eye contact. There is something about the eye contact that's important. And I go, it's so interesting. And I, again, I just didn't really realize this. Obviously, as humans, we look each other in the eye when we're talking. But I'd never really seen that in animals in the same way until I was introduced to dogs, you know, by living with a dog when Sarah and I got married. And it's like, oh, my dog is also looking into my eyes all the time. Like, that's just unusual, right? Like, why the eye? Like, what is it? And so it's been scientifically proven that when you have that connection, that eye-to-eye -eye connection, that there's something good happening inside you. And God has designed us that way. There is something that is bonding. There is something that is, is peaceful. There is something that is important going on in that moment. It has been said that every person on earth is looking to be truly seen in life. Everybody is looking for that in some way. They want to be seen. 
And that's also a scary thing, right? Because to truly be seen by somebody means, hey, I, you're going to see everything, right? You're going to see the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. There's the ugly stuff in here too. And so we have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with it. I think we want to be seen. We want to be known. And yet that's also scary. You have to be vulnerable. And, and you have to find people that you can trust and do that with. But there is something about being seen, about being acknowledged, about being known that is so crucial to us. It's something that we're looking for in this life. And we're going to see Jesus go down that path with someone as we look at our story today. So we're in Luke 19. Let's read our text together. And we're starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus, sometimes pronounced Zacchaeus, sometimes pronounced Zacchaeus. We're going to say Zacchaeus today, and if I'm wrong, Jesus will correct me when I get to heaven. Uh, but Zacchaeus' story is such an interesting one to me. And so we're, as I said, through the series, we're going to be looking at uh, just different stories like this. What happens as Jesus encounters different people in their sin? And how does he react and how does he respond? And what does that mean for us in our sin? What does that mean as we see other people in their sin? One of the things you'll see as we go through this uh, series, and this is going to be frustrating for some people, is that you're actually really hard-pressed to find Jesus functioning in formulas, like where it's the exact same thing every single time. He doesn't engage with every person exactly the same way every single time. And so if we're looking for, hey, just give me the rules that I can follow, just give me the formula that I, I can follow, that actually gets tricky because sometimes he engages with one person this way and he'll engage with someone else a little differently, almost as if he knew we were all different and we all needed something different. He is the one who created us, and he knows us very well. And so there's a verse I love from John 1.14, and, and I quote it to you at Christmas often. It's talking about Jesus. It says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes to us full of grace and full of truth. And my theory of humanity and my theory of the church is that when it comes to grace and when it comes to truth, most of us lean kind of one way or the other. Some of us are very good at, at being gracious and merciful and compassionate and loving. And sometimes we sacrifice the truth in the name of being so loving and so gracious. Some of us are very good at speaking the truth. And we're very good and forthright about making sure we understand that there is right and there is wrong. And we're good at speaking the truthful part, but we miss out on the grace and some of the mercy and some of the love. And so of grace and truth, Jesus wasn't one or the other. He was both together. And when it comes to grace and truth, where are you at? Where do you lean? If you lean to one side or the other, where might you need to stretch on the other side and make sure that you're not only going down one of those paths? Jesus comes to us full of grace and full of truth. And so in his truth, Jesus doesn't allow us to say, well, sin is not a big deal. And hey, we're all sinners, you're sinners, so we're just not going to talk about sin. He doesn't allow to do, uh, us to do that in his truth. But in his grace, he also doesn't allow us to only focus on sin when we're engaged 
engaging with people and to judge people and condemn people, his grace and truth both work together. And that's what we need to be digging into as we go through these, these different people that we'll be looking at. So first couple of verses, one and two. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a, cha- a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And so we took some time last week to talk about what those tax collectors were. And so Rome had taken over Israel, just brief recap, uh, and so they were horribly violent. Uh, they were, you know, worshiping their own gods. They were trying to take over the temple at different times. They were trying to crush the religion that the Jewish people were following. And they were incredibly violent to anything that even sniffed of a rebellion. Uh, there was no grace in Rome for anything like that. And so they were very, very heavy-handed. They were very, very authoritative. And so what they would do as they would take over different territories is they would say, hey, who wants to get rich of the people that we just took over? Anyone here want to get wealthy? And so they needed ways to collect taxes, but the Romans often didn't speak the language, they didn't understand the culture, they didn't understand the people. And so they would say, we need people who can go and collect taxes from the people, and we will give you a quota for what you need to reach. Anything you collect above that, that's yours to keep. And so for the tax collectors, this isn't kind of like today where it's like, oh, that person works for CRA and, you know, I hope I do well on my return this year. Uh, Maybe they'll give me a tough time. It's not that sort of, you know, disappointment with tax collectors. It's a whole other level because these were Jewish people. These were, were the people of God. And they were partnering with the oppressors. They were partnering with the ones who were killing the Jews. They were partnering with the pagans who were trying to crush the the Jewish religion and and take over the temple. Like they were traitors on every level. They were partnering with the evil empire who had taken them over. And as they're doing that, they're getting wealthy too. So they're also stealing. They're also going to their own people and under the authority of the oppressive empire, they are taking money that they shouldn't be taking and they are getting wealthy. So they're just horrible on every level, right? They are compromisers, they are traitors, they're betraying the race, they are betraying the faith, they are getting wealthy off the backs of poor people, like everything about it is is awful. Everything about it is evil. And so they are, are at the, at the you know, table where you're coming together to have you know, a neighborhood meal. The tax collectors are not invited to that table. They are not invited. In some places, they weren't allowed to come to worship, right? Because they were partnering with the pagans. And so you can't come to worship. No one's having you over. You're getting spit on in the street. You're being called horrible names. Like they, they have made a choice uh, to better themselves, and they have chosen to sin against their own people, and with that comes full rejection. They are cut off from the people of God. Uh, they are, there is nothing redeemable in, in a tax collector, and you'll see them show up in the Gospels all the time because Jesus engages with them fairly regularly. And so Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, and he's wealthy, so he must be particularly corrupt. Right? He's not just making a living. He's actually doing very, very, very well. And so Zacchaeus is, is sitting on top of a huge pile of money. He is cut off and outcast from his community. And he has heard about this Jesus. And so he comes looking. Let's keep going through our passage, verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he, Zacchaeus, came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember that song? A wee little man was he. 
he can't see. And so there's a, I, I love this part of Zacchaeus' story. Even caught up in his sin, even far from God, even far from doing the right thing, there's something in him that says, I need to see this Jesus. Right? There is something that God is doing in his heart already. There is a drawing that is happening. And, and again, we said it at communion, but like we don't come to God on our own. God has to draw us. The Father has to draw us. The Father has to take the veil away. And so Zacchaeus, there's something hungry in him that will not be held back. Remember Bartimaeus a few weeks ago that Bart won't back down? Like he's coming after God. He's coming after Jesus. Zacchaeus says, I, hey, I'll climb a tree. I'm not proud. I'm not fancy. I can climb up a tree. I want to see Jesus. And there's something in that hunger that is inspiring. Even in this man who is far from God, there is something that says, I'm not going to let a little crowd get in the way. I need to see who Jesus is. And the hunger drives him up the tree, uh, which turns out great because he was short. And because he was short, if he was at the back of the crowd, he might not ever have been seen. But as Jesus goes by, the text says, Jesus looks up and sees him. He sees him. Eye contact. He sees him, and he knows him, right? He knows his name. Zacchaeus, he knows his name. Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house. Jesus sees him, and for a man who must have felt particularly unseen by the world around him, right? Cut off from his people, kicked out of the synagogue, cut off from fellowship, cut off from friendship, spit on in the street, called horrible names. His whole family is in disrepute. For a man who was kicked out and cast out of society, Jesus looks up and sees him and calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Now, there are many things Jesus could have rightly done in that moment. And when Zacchaeus sees him, he could say, Zacchaeus, you're compromising all over the place, man. Zacchaeus, you are definitely in sin. Zacchaeus, look at the wealth of your house and your own people that you're stealing from. Zacchaeus, you're partnering with evil people who are slaughtering your fellow brothers and sisters and who are trying to stamp out the religion of Jehovah. He could have said any of those things. He could have said, Zacchaeus, here's a list of scriptures that you're violating every day by what you're doing. He could have said any of those things. And instead, he looked and sees Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, we're going to hang out today. I'm coming to your house. And the suggestion is, like, I'm staying with you. I'm staying over. I'm sleeping over at your house. And Zacchaeus comes down and says, yes, of course, and, and welcomes him gladly. But for a man who, I mean, that would have been shocking to everybody around, everyone in the story, Zacchaeus himself, this is a complete shock. That's not something that you would expect a man of God to do. But there's no anger in Jesus in that moment. There is no correction. There's no theological discussion. They're not getting into any of that stuff. It starts with Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. We're going to spend some time together. And so he comes down from the tree. And, and as he comes down, again, we start to see the murmur in the crowd, which we'll get to in a second, because he's about to welcome Jesus into his home. Now, Zacchaeus, we're all sinners, but Zacchaeus is, is a, you know, he's not a victim of sin. He's actually the victimizer, right? He's not the oppressed by the actions. He's the oppressor. 
He's partnering with the oppressors. He is victimizing other people. He is the predator in this story. He is the one doing the damage. And all of our sin does damage in different ways. But in Zacchaeus, like there's something about the way he's living his life that is particularly damaging to God's people, right? He is an oppressive victimizer. He is part of the system. He is part of the problem. And yet even there, Jesus says, there is grace reaching out to even them. And it's easy to make the oppressor the enemy, right? It's easier to make them, you know, hey, God loves me. But for those who do that, and that even for the victimizer, the grace of God is reaching out in Jesus. So Jesus, who is full of grace and he is full of truth, in the moment, just in this moment, uh, he leads with grace and not truth. In truth, he could have ripped Zacchaeus to shreds and he would have been absolutely right. But he puts truth aside just for the moment and he reaches out with grace first. Grace comes first. Let's hang out. I'm coming to your house today. We talked a little bit last week about a meal. Nowadays, having a meal is no big deal, right? We have business meals. We have casual meals. We have family meals. We have all sorts of stuff. But to have a meal, to have someone in your house in the ancient Near East was a big deal. There were very, very specific rules about hospitality. But the overall principle of it was is that if you have someone into your house, while they're sharing the meal with you, they're part of your family in that moment. And they're under your protection, and your job is to provide for them, and you're treating them like equals at your table. They are welcomed into the family for that time. So, I mean, you're not, you know, rewriting the will to include them in it or anything like that. But for the meal, they're part of your family. So to eat together was a big deal. So when Jesus eats with sinners, which is something he does kind of a lot in the Gospels, that just wasn't something a man of God was expected to do. They would have considered that defiling, that if you go and break bread with sinners, if you go and break bread with people who are not walking with the Lord, if you go and do that, then you're going to be drawn into their sin. And because you're having a family meal with them, you're actually associating with them. You are putting your name with them. You are treating them as family. And that's not what a man of God is supposed to do with sinners. Like that's just not supposed to be happening. And so when Jesus does these things, it's shocking. And you see the murmur of the crowd in verse 7. The people began to mutter, he's gone into the, to be the guest of a sinner. Right? They don't like that. There was something about how Jesus engaged with sinners that makes some religious people uncomfortable. They just don't like it. He's not being tough enough on sin. He's not calling them out on their sin. He shouldn't be having a meal with them in their sin. And Jesus actually just doesn't seem to care about that. That Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. And he never corrects that when they accuse him of that. They throw it at him as an insult. You friend of sinners. And Jesus says, the son of man has come and he has come to do exactly that. And of course, he was not friends with the sin. He was not endorsing the sin. But he came, as we saw in the passage, to seek and to save that which was lost. And who's going to save the sinners if if you're not going to reach out, if you're not going to spend time, if you're not going to connect, if you're not going to have a meal. And so Jesus goes, and it seems to say, it's not explicit in the text, but he seems to be saying, I'm staying over at your house tonight. Not just we're having a meal, but we're having a sleepover. We're actually going to spend that time together. The other irony of this is that they're muttering he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And of course, the people who are saying that are forgetting their own sin. Like, what are you Right? Like you also have sin. You also are are struggling. You also have fallen short. You also are not perfect. And that is meant to move us to compassion towards other people in their sin because we know we have our own. I shared that quote last week from Philip Yancey. It says, Christians get very angry at people who sin differently than they do. 
that it's, it's very easy to judge when you're struggling with a thing that I don't struggle with. But, but we should be moved to compassion constantly. We looked at this verse last week from Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, Jesus says, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the way in which you engage with others in their sin is going to come back on you. And so that will, should, it doesn't always, but it should motivate us. And how are we going to engage with others? How would I want to be treated in my own sin? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so when it comes to sin, I've got my stuff, you've got your stuff. The idea, we want all the eyes clean, right? We all want to find the way of Jesus. We all want to be walking in the way that God has called us to walk. We all want to be free of our sin, but it's so easy just to focus on what you're doing and not deal with my own stuff. Jesus says you deal with your stuff first. And then as you're dealing with your own stuff, you are freed up to help the other in theirs, not just judge them, not condemn them, not put them down or yell at them. If you see sin in someone else that you want to call out, you are signing up to help them get out of it. There is nowhere I can find in scripture where we're allowed to say to someone, you're a sinner and then just walk away and be done. If you're calling it out, you're signing up to help. And we're signing up to help each other, right? Because we all need help to get out of this. In order to get out of our sin, there seems to be something hugely powerful and scary, which is why we often don't do it, but hugely powerful in going to someone else and say, I am struggling with this particular sin. Can you pray with me and walk with me as we try to get out of it? There is something so powerful about that confession and that accountability that just releases something in God's grace to help us get out of it. It's so important. And so as Jesus is teaching us about sin in the Sermon on the Mount, it's watch your attitude and how you judge. This should move us to empathy and compassion when we see people in sin because I know what it's like to have stuff in my own eye. And my struggle might be the same as yours. It might be a different struggle. And it's not to say we're all just going to say, hey, well, we're all sinners, so no sin matters, and we're not ever going to talk about it. Jesus doesn't let us do that. But it should move us to compassion and empathy that I've got stuff in my eye, and you've got stuff in your eye, and we want all of our eyes clean, ultimately. But I'm going to have some grace for you and help you. If you're looking for that, you can help me with my stuff. And then the goal is we're all finding the way God wants us. We're, we're cleaning up everybody's eye as we're walking through this together. So Jesus goes into the house of Zacchaeus. The fascinating thing is we don't have a clue what happens next. We don't have a clue what the dinner conversation was like. We don't have a clue what Jesus said or what he didn't say. All we know is that Zacchaeus comes down. They head off into the house. The crowd kind of grumbles. What's he doing with a sinner? And then we fast forward to verse 8. It says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What happened? What happened in those moments? Scripture tells us nothing. And I was reading a commentary on this a couple of months ago, and the commentary said, well, of course it's clearly evident that Jesus was obviously lecturing him on his sin over the meal so that he could see the error of his ways. I go, that's not evident at all. There's no evidence there. That could have happened for sure. What if all they did was talk about whatever the equivalent of sports was back then? What if they were just hanging out? And that's speculation too. We have no idea what happened. 
We have no idea what Jesus said. We have no idea if he said anything. I'm prone to lean, and I'll be clear. If the Bible's not clear, we need to say it's not clear. So it's not clear. But I would be prone to lean to the fact that Jesus probably didn't call him out just because the Bible's pretty faithful to record it when he does. And so the fact that it didn't say, hey, Zacchaeus got a lecture, makes me lean towards the idea that that probably didn't happen. But through whatever did happen and, and whatever Jesus said, maybe it was something that was specifically said. Maybe it was just being in the presence of a holy Jesus. Maybe it was just out of the act of kindness and love that Jesus had just shown, in, shown to him. But somehow or another, the revelation comes, God opens his eyes, something breaks in him, and something changes. And so what is evident is Zacchaeus is a different man as the story unfolds. And for a man who has gotten very wealthy, so he's been doing this for a while, and he's very good at it, he stands up and says, Lord, my life is about to change right now. And where I've been in sin, I'm turning away from my sin. And where I've done wrong, I am going to make it right. And where there is poverty, I'm going to be a force of good against that poverty. And so I just think whatever happened that we don't know, one thing that is for sure is that being in the presence of Jesus Christ can change a life. There is something about being in his presence. And sometimes maybe he speaks clearly, and sometimes it's not clear. It's just being in his presence. But there is something about being with Jesus that transformed Zacchaeus forever. And it seems, and we'll see other versions as we go through this series, sometimes some people need just a good, you know, rap on the knuckles, right? Sometimes people like a good, blunt, kind of punch-in-the-face conviction and rebuke. And some people need a gentle touch. And some people just need an, an act of love. And again, for a man who was rejected and cast out, for a man who, who had lost all his relationships, for a man who had nothing really except his money and maybe the other tax collectors that he could connect with, for a man who had been cut off from his faith and cut off from his people, for a man who was cast out, that Jesus says, I'm coming to spend time with you. And there was something in that connection and whatever followed after that that brought salvation to the house, Jesus would say. And so Zacchaeus was welcomed in by Jesus, and, and Jesus brought him into his, his family in that moment. He brought him into his circle, and he spent that time with him. Zacchaeus says, if, anybody, uh, if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to pay back four times. Uh, there's one verse in the law that says if you take a sheep, you've got to pay back four times the sheep. Uh, more often in the law, there's verses like this. This shows up a number of times, Numbers 5, 6, and 7 of God's law. And the Old Testament says, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it to the person they have wronged. And so that shows up a few times in the law that it's as kind of a fine. So if you did something wrong, there's a 20% fine on top of whatever you did that was wrong. Zacchaeus just so crazy blows past that, right? Like 20% was kind of the, the standard at the time. He says, I'll pay back 400%, uh, and I will do that in order to make that right. Like whatever has happened, he has been convicted of his sin. And he has decided, I'm not only going to turn away from my sin and just kind of start fresh and, and go in a new direction, but I'm also going to make wrong everything that I've done wrong. I'm going to undo the damage wherever I can of the damage that I have done. There's transformation that happens there. There's repentance that happens there. And we've talked about that word repentance when it comes to our sin. And all it really means in its most basic form, repentance means change. It means change direction. It means change your thinking. It means change the path 
that you're on. You're going on a path of sin. Change that direction and find God's way. So he's moved away from selfishness. He's moved away from gathering wealth for himself. He's moved away from being driven by money. He says, I'm giving away half my possessions to the poor. I'm moving towards generosity because generosity is better than selfishness. I'm moving towards restitution because that's going to undo some of the damage. Like he's, he's repenting. That's real repentance. I'm choosing a completely different way to do this. Jesus would tell a story uh, just a little bit earlier in the chapter before in Luke's gospel about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And it says that the tax collector and the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray. And as they go up to pray, the Pharisee prays uh, a very, uh, it's, it's not a, a terrible prayer. Uh, I think a lot of Christians probably think this way and, and pray this way. Uh, and yet it's a terrible one at the same time where he just says, God, thank you for, for where you brought me. Thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that you've worked something out in me and I'm doing these things for you and, I, and I'm living for you. And he's just very grateful for where he finds himself. And Jesus says the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but just prayed simply lord have mercy on me sinner that i am and jesus says which one got forgiven that day and it wasn't the one who said i am doing great look at how great i'm doing lord in case you didn't notice i gotta tell you how great i am doing and so the the pharisee comes in and and is pretty proud about where he's at but he's missed the fact that he needs god's grace and his mercy just like anybody else the tax collector comes and he says, Lord, I need your mercy. And he's the one who gets forgiven because it is the merciful, the one who are seeking the mercy of the Lord, the one who are hungry for that mercy, the ones who understand I need God's forgiveness that receive it. And Jesus makes very clear in his word that the, the tax collector was the one who got the blessing of God that morning. First John chapter 1, 8 and 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And isn't that just one of the most beautiful promises of God's word? That you're a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. We, we are a sinner. That's not our primary identity right now, but we understand there is still sin in our lives. We are now children of God. We are saints of God, but we see that there is sin still there. If we claim that we're sinless, then we deceive ourselves, but the, the, you know, that's not where it ends. That's not where it stops. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins. If we are faithful to confess, he is faithful to forgive, and not just that, to purify us from all unrighteousness. There is something in the, the tax collector in the parable that just says, I need to go to the temple, and I just need God's mercy. There was something in Zacchaeus that says, I, just, I need Jesus. Jesus is what I need. Uh, all of his sin is there, but I need Jesus. I need to know who this Jesus is. There needs to be something in us that says, I need his grace. I need his mercy. I need his forgiveness, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. The mercy and grace of Jesus is there for anyone who would come. We sang it today. The, the souls of all who would come to the Father will be restored. The promise of God in his word, the beauty and the power of the gospel. Last couple of verses, we're almost done. Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so there's, you know, we look at Zacchaeus up to this point and says, like, oh, wow, good for him. He's really turned his life around. Jesus says, not only has he turned his life around, salvation has come to this house today. And the key there is not that salvation has come because Zacchaeus is now doing some good things because we believe we're not saved by the good things that we do. The salvation comes because Zacchaeus, when he stands up to say, I'll give half my possessions to the poor, 
he says, Lord, Lord, look, Lord. I'll give my possessions to the poor and I'm going to make everything right. The salvation has come because somehow, whatever happened in that conversation, he has seen who Jesus is and says, okay, I'm gearing my life towards you now, Jesus. You are Lord. And as he says, Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm following after you in your ways now. Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. That is the nature of our salvation, that we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and we follow after him, and we follow in his ways. And so Jesus says, salvation has come because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. And if you can put yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes, can you imagine what it felt like to hear that? You know you're a traitor to the people of Abraham. You know you're a traitor to your own people. You know that you're spit on and despised and cast out. You've been kicked out of the family of Abraham. And then Jesus stands up and says, this man is a son of Abraham. This man is part of the family. This man is part of the people. And he restores him to everything that he had lost by his own selfishness and by his own actions. This is a true Jewish man. And even though he had done all of those things, there is grace and forgiveness for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is changing his life. Jesus says, you are part of this family. Jesus welcomes him into the family. And we've got that last phrase, the well-known phrase, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If Jesus Christ had a mission statement, it would probably be that right there. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was far away, and Jesus comes to bring him back in. He was far away. It was his own fault, his own choices, his own mistakes, his own sin. Even so, uh, Jesus doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't come with judgment. Jesus comes as a good shepherd to find the sheep that was lost and to bring the sheep back into the family. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. So here at Meadowbrook, we're helping people take their next steps with Jesus upward, inward, and outward. And so just for some things for you to reflect on, I don't always like to tell you what to do with the message. I actually want you to take it to the Lord yourself and say, Lord, what do I do with this message and how do I live this out? So upward, inward, and outward. So upward in our walk with Jesus, our relationship with Jesus in terms of our next steps. Uh, where are we like Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus literally went upward. Right? He literally went up the tree. He was so hungry for more. He was so hungry to know the Lord. He was so hungry to see him. So where are we being like Zacchaeus then? Where are we going upward? Where are we taking steps? Where are we hungry? Right? Zacchaeus climbed a tree, and that's good. Are we doing anything to press into the Lord? Are we opening our Bibles? Are we coming to church? Are we engaging with other believers? Are we learning? Are we growing? What steps do we need to take where Zacchaeus just said, I need to see the Lord better? What can you do in your life in terms of next steps to see the Lord better? What steps can you take in pursuit of him in the upward direction? On the inward side, inward is about what Jesus is doing in us, how he is changing us, healing us, making us holy, setting us free. In terms of inward, it's, I think we'll come back to this often, is as it relates to your own sin and how you look at yourself and, and how that sin hangs there, what's a next step to start to deal with that then? Right? If I were to say to you, what are the top three sins going on in your life right now? You probably have an answer. You should have an answer. And the answer is good. It's always, that's how it starts. I know what the problem is, and here it is. But then what comes next in terms of starting to deal with that stuff? To get that plank out of your own eye. 
what's a step you need to take there? And it might start with confession to the Lord. Maybe it's, you know what, I actually need to confess this to somebody else and bring them alongside me. If you don't have that accountability partner in your life, you need somebody. You don't need to tell the world your sins, but you need somebody in your life. Scripture tells us to confess to the Lord. It also tells us to confess our sins to one another. And there is something so healing and freeing when you find that other person you trust. And you say, hey, I'm going to share my stuff and you're going to share your stuff. We're going to see all the junk in each other's eyes. But then we're going to help each other walk with Jesus and watch what he does as he sets us free. In terms of outward, who is there in your life who needs a meal? Who is there outward that, that this needs that sign of grace? Who is that person who is far away? Who is that person who's feeling cut off? Who is that person who is feeling alone or feeling rejected or feeling spit upon? Who is that person in your life who just needs that simple, gracious invitation? Hey, let's hang out. Come to my house today or I'll come to your house today. We're going to spend that time together. Where is there someone in your life where you can be like Christ to Zacchaeus to say, wherever you're at, whatever you've done, whatever you've done, I see you. You are not forgotten. You are not cut off. You are not lost on your own. I see you, and Jesus sees you. Who wants a burger? Let's sit down, and let's share some time together. Let's see what the Lord does in there, right? And then again, we don't have a formula here of like, well, when you sit down for the meal, make sure you talk about this, 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 and that. I can't help you on that one. That'll be for you to pray into. But who is there that needs to be welcomed in, who needs to be connected with, where you see them, and, and they get that sense, not just of you, but hey, Jesus sees me too. Would you stand to your feet, please, as we get ready to wrap up? We always like to close in worship, so let's fix our eyes on him as we get ready to close today.